You're listening to Inspired Edinburgh, a weekly interview show that brings you raw and powerful conversations with fascinating people from all walks of life. Our mission is to inspire and encourage you to reflect on your identity, beliefs, purpose and worldview. If you enjoy this, please subscribe for future episodes and feel free to contact us via any of our social media channels. Thank you in advance for taking the time to listen to the show and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Jojo Sutherland. Jojo is a comedian, actor, writer, speaker and founder of Gag Traders and Stand Up and Be Counted. You perform in comedy clubs worldwide where you're in demand for both your comparabilities and comedy routines. You're regularly requested to support other comics on tour, including Jenny Eclair, US comic Louis Ramey, Four Poofs on a Piano and Tom Stade, and have been a TV warm-up artist for studio-based shows, which have included the BBC One sitcom The Old Guys and Badults on BBC Three. You're a contributor to several publications, including online magazine Standard Issue, and have your own regular column in Made magazine called Trust Jojo. In 2012, you co-wrote and performed a six-part sketch show called The Gates, which aired on BBC Radio Scotland. And in 2015, you starred in an online sitcom alongside Daniel Sloss and Tom Stade called Muff Productions. <laughs> Jojo, it's brilliant to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like you're stalking me, you know so much. I do. <laughs> I've done a fair bit of research. It's been a lot of fun. I've uh, forgotten I've done some of that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good, good reminder for all the successes that you've Absolutely. had, I suppose. So. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. In one of the bios, actually, I came across uh, something that suggested that you had a healthy neglect attitude. Absolutely. I'm very much of the sort of dragging kids up by their sort of earlobes and having a look and then popping them back down again and they seem to be fine and really? um, yeah so um, quite often I think it's sort of role reversal I'll sort of swear out loud in the kitchen and one of my children go mum stop it stop swearing like, I'm sure this is the wrong way right and yeah, um, yeah. they're great I, yeah that's great excellent excellent stuff um we were speaking a little bit off camera before mm. about you know your early life and your background mm. it would be great if you could go into a bit of detail about you know what really growing up was like for you well it was quite odd and I kind of because it was my normal but I think sort of mm -hmm. people are always quite sort of amazed when I tell them because I grew up in the castle and uh, I always like to say that I sort of started at the top and I've steadily worked my way down <laughs> it's that um, my dad was a writer and so he was sort of quite eccentric and um, I'd been married a couple of times before and I met my mum. And so, yeah, so this idyllic house in, in rural Perthshire, just near Dunkel, called Rahalian, which was the, the coldest castle in all of castledom. <laughs> um, but beautiful, surrounded by four hills and a loch. And 
Um, but, I mean, we'd end up, there was sort of 15 bedrooms and a dining room and a morning room and a billiard room. And, really? Um, yeah, wow. I mean, it was absolutely staggering. But most of the time you could find us all huddled round a two-bar fire in a room sort of four foot by four foot because that was the only way to keep warm. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it had electric underfloor heating at some point, but it blew up and um, was never fixed. And, yeah, it was absolutely Baltic. So really? um, my dad always used to say the only way to keep warm is to hope that cat pissed in your bed so good stuff good stuff I, I i think i um i saw on linkedin you went into i think you studied kind of film theater is that right yes, that was so i'd always wanted to be an actor really yes yeah, so i was just the most terrible show off <laughs> but i again sort of psychoanalyzing myself i'm convinced that's because i was the youngest of seven by the time my parents got to me, they couldn't have given less of a shit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They were just like, oh, yeah, it worked out with the rest of them. They'll be fine. And kind of, so I sort of dragged myself up. Um, mm -hmm. And I've kind of taken that with me. We were talking about things that you inherit from your parents. Yes, yeah. And I sort of, the healthy neglect that I got as a child, I have absolutely taken on board with my own kids because um, I'm working out. Didn't do me any harm. <laughs> but, yeah, it is that sort of... Um, Sorry, I forgot. I was talking about something else. Um, but yeah, it, it just a, a mad childhood that, um, yeah, was crazy and I loved it. Yeah, yeah. So you said that you wanted to go into to acting. Yes. Um, so, yes, we were talking yeah. about that. Yeah. So uh, what was sort of your, your earliest break into that? Um, well, I remember um, saying to my dad that I wanted to be an actor and... And he was, you know, sort of saying, it's not really, you know, I mean, he was a writer and he kind of knew that freelance way of life and, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't work, you don't get paid and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I was absolutely determined. And I, stupidly at that time, didn't think that people talked to each other. So I went into school on my 16th birthday and said that I was, um, you know, I was leaving school because I had a, I had a, a job in a, as an actor. <laughs> And by the time I got home, funnily enough, they phoned home. Oh my <laughs> so my dad said, so you've got a job in acting. Where, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, I can't believe I've been caught out. Oh, seriously. Um, and he basically, I said, I hate school. I don't want, I just want to be an actor. And he said, if you can find a job acting uh, in some of them, you don't have to go back to school. Really? And, and I was so determined. And I, what actually happened was I got myself a job as a wardrobe assistant at the Traverse Theatre oh, okay. um, and applied for a course at Glasgow Arts Centre and got both of them and <laughs> basically stuck two fingers up. And he really couldn't argue with me. He was like, right, OK, then you don't have to go back to school. Um, and so when I was 16, I went on this course at Glasgow Arts Centre, which oh. I just loved. Yeah, and it was it was designed as a sort of yop scheme back in the day, yop youth opportunities. Yeah, but it was run yeah. as a proper um, theatre course with professional stage directors and um, yeah, it was just yeah lighting designers and stage managers and and it, we were in working in prisons and going out on tour wow. and it was just phenomenal. Mm. And loads of people, so David Mackay, Caroline Patterson, Blythe Duff. You know, it was this real, um, Bobby Carlyle did the adult acting course. And so, I mean, oh. the people that did that course mm -hmm. are hugely successful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was an incredible training ground and proper grassroots. You know, I, I remember being told the only reason not to turn up for rehearsals is if, is if you're dead. 
And I've kind of taken that philosophy with me. You know what I mean? I've got so little time for people that have excuses for not turning up. Yeah. You know, and that is the only excuse. If, you know, if you've agreed to do something, you've got to be there. Absolutely. You know? So, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It would be great to get um, a, a sort of an insight from your perspective as to how your career has gone since then, you know, what your mm. career path has been and how it's unfolded. Well, I always, I always, like I say, so I wanted to be an actor and that was it. That was mm -hmm. going to be an actor. And <laughs> life has a way of getting in the way of your <laughs> ideas and plans and ideals. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, so, you know, I trained as an actor and then immediately sort of finishing that course, I was, and I did Scottish Youth Theatre and, you know, so I was sort of immersed in it. And then I had jobs left, right and centre. I was just going from one production to another. And it was just like, oh, this idea that, you know, actors never work. <sighs> Don't know what they're talking about. doing. <laughs> Constantly working. Mm -hmm. And then my mum had a car accident and I was deemed as the only person who wasn't doing anything with her lives. <laughs> so, and she was, you know, so she was, she had a car accident in Spain and mm. sort of was hospitalized out there for several months before bringing her home. And so I got, and also I wanted to, but I got voted as the person that was, you know, the best position to go and kind of look after her. Yeah. Um, and so I did that. So I sort of took six to eight months of looking after mum. And came back thinking, oh, I'll be fine. I'll just wander back into an acting job. And that's when I realized, oh, it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I applied for a few jobs, didn't get them. Um, and then sort of took up a couple of bar jobs just to kind of, sort of pay the bills and things. And then, yeah, and sort of life sort of carried on. And then I got sort of little bits and pieces, but it wasn't really paying the bill. And then that juxtaposition of going, oh, I remember having a conversation with a guy called Brian Duncan who used to own the Oyster Bars in Edinburgh, which were fabulous bars. And I'd been working for him and then he'd said to me, he offered me a job as a manager. Mm -hmm. But he said, basically, you know, but I need to know that you're going to stick, stick at it. Do you know what I mean? I know you want to act and all the rest of it, but I really need sort of a two-year commitment out of you. And I'd gone for an audition for Wildcat and it was three weeks later and I hadn't heard anything. And I was like, oh, do you mind just, yeah, do it. You know, you need to just kind of earn some money. And literally I accepted the job offer. And two days later, well, came back, Kat came back. And that's the instinct loyal to me. I was like, no, I said I was going to, you know, and I probably could have, and I kind of wonder what would have happened. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, so I worked in a bar for two years and got married and had kids and <laughs> life just went off on a different trajectory. And so acting just, disappeared you know and life took over yeah and um, which it has a habit of doing absolutely you yeah know? it certainly so, does yeah, yeah yeah so at what stage did you um i suppose discover comedy and decide i mean that's really i suppose become your primary niche now yeah so when at what point did you think like right comedy's my thing when i had the brain hemorrhage but even then i didn't think that comedy was my thing so right okay um so yeah so like i say so i'd got married had kids got divorced yeah. Um, and then out of the blue, and then I'd met a girl who, amazingly, I didn't, I'm amazed I didn't know her before, fabulous woman called Gowan Calder, you should interview her, she's fabulous. <laughs> um, and she's a playwright and director, and she's just an incredible uh, person. And I met her really randomly at my brother's house at um, some sort of gathering, and we literally started chatting to each other. And we sat on the wall and we never spoke to anybody else at the party the entire night. We were just like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and we knew all these people in common. And she was directing 
uh, show at the Netherball Theatre that was, is now the Storytelling Centre. Hmm. Um, and she, yeah, so she was doing the show and she said, oh, come along, come along to the rehearsals and see, you know, I'm sure I could find a part for you. So I was like, oh, that'd be great and sort of get back into acting, you know, that'd be a fantastic thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. So she was the one that sort of encouraged me to look at acting again. I still had three small kids and, you know, and by this time I was divorced, I was on income support, you know. Mm. It was all just like, it all seemed like such a dream away from my childhood. It was like, you know, don't be ridiculous. It's completely impractical. You can't go be an actor. You know, you've got a family to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the minute I stepped on stage, I was just like, oh, I fell in love with it. I just It was like going home. It was like, this is where I belong. This is absolutely, I just feel so, I know people get nervous. I am the complete opposite. It's like, I, you know, I'm anxious the rest of the time. I'm kind of going worrying about things. And I step on a stage and just everything melts away. I just go, ah, I don't have to worry about a thing. I just pretend to be whatever I, you know, so I love it. <laughs> is, it is that an escapism thing? It's a complete you know? escapism. I think yeah. it is. It's just, I completely lose myself and I feel, I feel the most me on stage. And, and it was in that production that halfway through I had a brain hemorrhage. Is that right? Is on it, stage. Oh, yeah. my God. So it was like, oh. And I didn't know I was having a brain hemorrhage. I thought it's just, um, but I think it's still the same at the nether pose. You, to get to the other side of the stage, you have to go up and round behind the lighting box. And I was doing that sort of to come on stage at the other side and uh, came out and thought, and you just have to quietly close this door. And I thought someone had thrown a brick at the back of my head. So I tried to turn around to see who'd hit me. I mean, it was really sudden, really vicious. I was, oh, you know, just, oh, my goodness. And then I couldn't move my head. I couldn't move. And my head slumped. And and then I'm panicking because my line's coming up. I can hear it. And it's, not, it's a bit like when you're falling asleep. It's sort of the voices just seemed really far away. And the mixture of going, what's happened? And... Mm. I need to be on stage mm-hmm. was such a weird feeling because <laughs> I knew something was seriously wrong. Yeah. Um, and this horrendous headache, and I felt really sick and I couldn't see properly. And I was sort of thinking meningitis because I was so good as a, you know, as a young mum and young kids, you're always paranoid about meningitis in your kids. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of self diagnosing meningitis. But I still went on stage. I heard my cue line. I still went on stage. Oh and I sat on stage and I could sense everybody knew something was wrong. And I couldn't lift my head because of the pain. So my head was just slumped. And I said my line, still so proud of myself. <laughs> I, was like, you know, I will not be defeated. Um, and then came off stage and sort of ran into or stumbled into the dressing room and immediately started throwing up in the sink. And there was a young chap there who. For the life of me, I cannot remember his name, who, just as the sweetest man ever, was holding my hair and swirling the sick out on the side. He barely knew me, what a lovely thing to do. Um, <laughs> and then Gowan was stressing out and just kind of, you know, because I had a costume change and they were like, are you, are you going to meet? And you were like, what's happening? And, and, and I genuinely considered going, could I, could I make a costume? And I thought, no, I, I really don't think I'm well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was biting my hand to stay awake because I wanted to fall asleep. I thought, if I fall asleep, I'm never waking up. I just knew there was something really wrong. Jeez. And then somebody thought, me, I think we'll take her to the hospital. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, and that's where it all unraveled. And then, yeah, they discovered that and they did a CAT scan, but the CAT scan was negative, and then they did lumbar puncture and discovered Gosh. blood in my spine. So, yeah. So, and that's, and it is, it's a life, everybody says that, it's very cliched, 
but something like that happens, your priorities just change out of all recognition. And so after I recover from that, which is quite unusual to not die from brain hemorrhage, because yeah. everyone I've spoken to since, I say I had brain hemorrhage, they go, oh, my mother had died. Oh, my sister had died. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, survival rates are really low. So yeah. I'm just incredibly lucky. So, yeah, so that's where wow. I just thought, right, I'm going to go and... I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. And that was the, the thought process. Gosh. Because you know? I, I actually had read an, an article about mm. that. that was reasonably recent. Um, did they ever find out what the cause of it was? Apparently it's genetic. I was right. born with a fault in my brain, which you, could, you can find out, but the, the test to find out if you have that fault is could trigger something. So it's, yeah, so they don't ever test for it. But yes, so it was genetic fault I was born with. Gosh. And it was always going to blow, so, um, it was, but it's very common in women between the ages of 30 and 36. Like, that's very niche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm very special. Um, and, yes, yeah, so the, the surgeon said at the time that my life expectancy was at normal. They could see where it had burst and where it had bled. And oh. it, was, it was more the damage that the blood would do in my system. So, yeah. you know, my sight, my speech, you know, um, and I, yeah, I, it, it just managed to run all the d- places that it didn't Gee. do me any damage at all. I get occasional dizzy spells and I'm quite forgetful. And I have a thing called face blindness, which is weird, but but good in that I know what it is now. So I could look at you now and I could sit here mm-hmm. and then tomorrow I could be walking along the street and I wouldn't recognise you. Seriously? Yeah, it's really weird. It's very, very Gosh. old and very disconcerting and makes me appear to be really rude. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah. And then so I'm always going, no, sorry, I've had a brain hammer. <laughs> so, but yes, please explain wow. this. There's a proper name for it, but yeah. She um, okay. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, in what ways um, did your priorities shift on the back of, of that happening? Um, so, like, so genuinely, at that time, I was a single parent on income support, um, three kids, had a very difficult marriage first time around, um, and had sort of kept sort of falling back in and out of it, do you know what I mean? Just kind of what else we're going to do. I just became really determined, and so mm. I told him where to go <laughs> big time, and just like, get the fuck. <laughs> get out of my life never want to see you again not even entertaining this yeah. um, and wanted to get back into acting and then thought right how do I do that and purely by chance so there was a an article the List magazine mm-hmm. um, had an advert for a stand-up comedy course at Strathclyde University which was 10 weeks long it was free to people on income support get in <laughs> um, and so I travelled and so I was organised babysitting everything to go to this course which was two hours every week on a Thursday in Glasgow I've stuck in fact when I moved house I found my certificate my my Scott Cat uh, points that I got for completing the course <laughs> um never wanted to be a comedian I just it wasn't on my route never been in a comedy <laughs> club didn't really know what stand-up comedy was other than everybody was terrified of it yeah and so and that was the sort of thought process it was like oh as an actor that looked really good in my acting cv if i've got stand-up comedy it sort of set me apart from everyone else and so that's why i did it was to you know it was for the, for the acting side of things and mm-hmm. then at the end of it you do a five minute open mic thing and it wasn't even to poor, unsuspecting public. It was um, invited friends and family. So I did five minutes. Uh, that was December 2001. 
and I've never looked back. Hmm. And I just gig all over the place. And so it was, it was that first gig and I fell in love with it. It was just like, oh, this is just magical. Because I love acting and I still love acting. But comedy is just another level of control, I think. (laughs) And it's kind of, because I do love being on stage and I love acting with other people and and a direct, but you take complete responsibility as a stand-up. So you write everything, you perform it, and, you know, you live or die by what you do on stage and you Mm -hmm. can't rely on anybody else. It it is solely you. And so that thing of you've got 200 people and they're all laughing, you kind of go... I did that, you know. <laughs> but equally, if you've got 200 people, they roll with their arms folded, you go, yeah. I did that. <laughs> so, yes. um, but yeah, it's that ultimate um, kind of control of it, of, of your, yeah, of your creative thing that I love. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that. So. That's fantastic. How would you describe your style of comedy? Badass mum. <laughs> Badass mum. Um, yeah. And I think... Like anything, I mean, comedy is, you know, it takes a while to find your voice. And when I first started doing, you know, I was talking about the kids and you talk about what you know. And mm-hmm. and, and over the years, I mean, it's it's very much stretched. I'm very opinionated about a lot of things. <laughs> I'm very cross about things. Um, but yeah, originally it was sort of, you know, that was my life. It was my kids and my divorce. And, you know, so it was kind of quite sort of close. Um but I would be really rude about the kids, which I'm really rude about the kids to them. Do you know what I mean? But we have a relationship where that absolutely <laughs> works and we love and we've got, you know, great communication. But I say things about my kids to my kids that other people just, you can't say that. And I'm going, oh, my kids totally get it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> what would be um, an example? Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, sort of smoking and drinking and, you know, things like that. I, okay. and I do a joke about the fact that... Um, you know, I try to stop smoking, but I'm not going to stop drinking. What kind of a mother would I be if I stopped drinking? My kids are so used to seeing me with a cigarette in one hand, pint of lager in the other, waving them off to school in the morning. <laughs> you know, and my kids are used to, you know, my kids do see me, you know, pissed. And, you know, it's just like, you know, and, and I'll say, to, oh, have a drink, shut up. You know, and go, I'm 14, mum. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so it is kind of, um, and it is funny. And we do have this slight, slight rule reversal, but... Um, but essentially, I, I am the parent, um, and so yeah. I mean, it's it. But when so when I first started, and I talk about my kids, and I'd be really rude about them, and you know, say dreadful things. I hate my kids. Can't wait my kids. And then people sometimes you would get audience go, oh. I go, I'm kidding. I don't. I don't mean it. I do really love them. Mm-hmm. And then I've learned to stop apologising because of course I love them. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. just like if you're an idiot in the audience, doesn't it? Actually, thinks I really hate my kids. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But there's a there's a key part of all of us that does at some point hate their kids. You know, and that's the bit I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so it takes a while to find your voice and to to own what you're saying. You know, and and change that position from wanting the audience to love you and like you mm-hmm. and I mean Tom Stade taught me that in as much as I've watched comedians all the time in the audience kind of you go oh, you know, oh I hope they like me or you want the audience to be impressed or to laugh or whatever and I'm doing tour support for Tom and night after night I'd watch him go out and I was like oh, I finally realised Tom couldn't give a shit and the audience it's the audience going like me Tom like me you know I was like oh it's complete reversal the yeah. audience want Tom to love them not Tom and Tom does want the, the audience to love mm-hmm. him but but that's not what comes across and I've learned that from him just that sense and and it does you just kind of go you know I'm too I'm too long in this now if you don't like me tough 
mm-hmm. you know. And also because not everybody can like you all the time. You can't exactly. convince everyone. And so I have to just talk about what I know and what I believe in and what I laugh about. And if some people go, they disagree, they don't like it, well, we're not going to be friends then, are we? <laughs> I, mean, I like these people that are laughing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, you can't please no. all people all the time. No, absolutely not. Um, and there's there's probably a certain portion of people that are just never quite going to yeah, get you anyway. Never going to get it, you know. Yeah. And and th- and that and that's fine. And nobody's mm-hmm. right. Nobody's wrong. You know, yeah. but I mean, it'd be incredibly boring if we all did completely agree all the time. Yeah. But sometimes I like to think that, you know, my attitude is kind of quite sort of lazy, fair, and, you know, and I do not sweat the small stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I think sometimes I do kind of persuade audiences around that kind of go, oh, do you know what? Yeah, I don't have to iron my pants. <laughs> no, you don't. You really don't. Get out there and do something useful with your life. <laughs> how do you um, how do you get into flow and prepare for comedy routines? That's a really good question because I don't really no, and that's I mean, I think again. Um, experience does that and being and doing different gigs and uh the festival's phenomenal for you know being able to um adapt and so i think that the year that i first did the stand had a very successful year the first year and my show was on at half 12 in the afternoon before doing comedy in the afternoon was popular you know um and i did okay numbers wise not great um, but, you know, I was sort of, you know, but gigging every day, I was just like, oh, you know, nothing beats gigging every day, absolutely nothing. Mm. And then the following year, I did a show at the stand, and my reward for doing so well with my numbers was to be put on half an hour earlier, and that just didn't work. Midday at the stand six, seven years ago just mm-hmm. was too early. Um, and so I was getting four or five people, some days I was getting no one. And it was, and one of my favourite days was when they'd advertised tickets um, on 4th Radio. And so there was competition winners, you could win tickets. So I had two competition winners in my audience, all four. So there was two <laughs> people that had paid and two people that had won a competition. You just went, this is the pits. So, um, and so doing that for a month, you just kind of go, you have to adapt, you have to sell it differently. And, you know, there was one day I had two people in the audience, I was like, Really? do you want me to do the show? And he said, well, this is the only opportunity we're going to get to see it. And I was like, okay then. And so I did the show, but you kind of, you have to do it a different way. And and so I learned so much from that. So now I genuinely just feel like you could blindfold me and put mm-hmm. me on a train and chuck me off and throw me in a room. And I'd be like, right, okay, which other, there's the audience, right? Hi, good evening. My name is <laughs> you know, and I just, yeah. so I don't feel, and sometimes I feel, that's a better way, just that there isn't that preparation. I'm not overthinking it. Mm-hmm. You absolutely are getting me. I'm the closest to me now on stage than I ever have been, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can be literally backstage having a conversation and then I'll hear the music. Oh, oh sorry, hang on, I'll back in a sec. <laughs> Hello, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, you've stand before. <laughs> um, but I like that, I like that, not thinking it too much. And then, yeah. you know... With some gigs, you're much more comfortable because, you know, you're familiar with the territory. Mm-hmm. If there are other gigs where, you know, it's about if you're sort of, I'm doing a thing next weekend um, for, or more, there's a dance thing for mental health 
action and they're releasing a single and all that. And so I'm comparing that. So, you know, I do think, right, okay, um, we'll we'll do a bit about that. And, you know, so I kind of have a a bullet point structure, maybe, that I might follow. Okay. But I always, if I get there and my bullet point doesn't, I kind of go, oh, no, that's not going to work. I'll go with whatever feels natural rather than what I've pre-prepared. Okay. So. Yeah. Because otherwise it feels forced. I think if you're absolutely just going to go, right, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. And then, you know, the audience isn't that demographic or whatever. Yeah, I think you just, you have to live in the moment, as it were. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What do you think makes a great comedian? Not caring. <laughs> really, genuinely mm-hmm. not caring, and and that sounds callous, and it's and it's not not caring in the way that in normal societal rules. It's not that you don't care about people, but it's it is not it's not caring about that judgment, or you know, it's about just really believing in what what you believe in and and conveying that and having something to say. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm doing these comedy courses, and that's one of the first things I'll say to people is. You know, because stand-up now has become so popular and I think the advent of TV has made it really popular mm-hmm. that, you know, everybody wants to be a stand-up, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the avenues in order to do it are are easier in some respects, although hard to get booked because so many people want to do it. Yeah. But one of the first things I will say in a comedy course, I can't teach you to be funny. You know, you've either got it or you haven't got it. I can help you develop and, you know, and structure and all that kind of stuff. And also, unless you've got something to say, you know, piss off. I mean, this isn't for you, you know, there's no point that, you know, bored to death of people going, you know, oh, my girlfriend dumped me. Who gives a shit? (laughs) I really couldn't be arsed. I don't care. (laughs) Neither does anybody else. So, yeah, have an opinion and and stick to it and don't be, don't be swayed. Mm -hmm. So in more recent times, you've moved into, I suppose, a sort of corporate environment yes. um, with your workshops mm. and, and using, I suppose, the skills that you've learned from comedy in order to help other people yeah. with, I suppose, confidence and, and yeah. self-esteem type stuff. So tell me a bit about, you know, how one of your sessions works and, and what it entails. Well, the reason, because it came about purely organically as well, because, you know, I've been doing stand-up comedy and then teaching stand-up comedy and then teaching stand-up comedy to people with mental health issues and long-term ill health. Mm-hmm. And then just sort of all came together in a conversation, you know, saying, oh, oh, we'd really like that. I think that'd be a good team-building exercise. And so it is that thing. And and my sort of first thoughts, really, in business, I don't know if that would necessarily work, you know, in sort of, in a sort of more austere setting and, you know, people who work in finance or, you know, accountants, whatever, you're just going, really? Not sure about this. Um, But I structured, you know, and I sort of put together an idea that's sort of based on a mini comedy course, but for the business world. And then Mm -hmm. when I really did drill down, I love the psychology of comedy, that it's the psychological aspect uh, behind comedy that works anywhere. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people, so there was a survey done of people's top 10 fears. Number two was dying. Number one was speaking in public. People would rather die (laughs) than speak in public. Um, And people have that fear in business. And so a lot of uh, people that do presentations or even, you know, dealing with difficult clients Mm. or um, women in business particularly, there's still sort of the gender divide and, and or, or whoever just got being overridden in meetings, being talked over, all these kind of things. The, the skills that you use in comedy 
transfer into business. So mm-hmm. it's sort of being heckled, really, is somebody <laughs> interrupting you and your response to that. Um, and, uh, you know, standing up in front of people, connecting with someone, holding their attention for mm. a set period of time, um, speaking to different people, although having the same message, but speaking to different people in a, in a different way. So... And one of so one of the things I teach is that the things that are always deemed to be negative in business, things like manipulative, confrontational, selfish, uh, vulnerable, mm. all the things that you kind of go, oh, they're they're bad things, are all the things that you need to be a really good stand-up and a good communicator because you have to be manipulative, but not in a bad way. Yeah. You need to manipulate what you're saying to the different people that you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You need to be selfish because when, as a comic on stage, you talk about yourself. It's about what you want to convey. It's about, it's about you first and, and them second. <laughs> um, showing your vulnerability, there's nothing wrong with admitting that you're not particularly good at something or that something scares you. And, you know, comedy is driven by love, hate, fear. Mm-hmm. And... And when we actually recognise, and it's also about recognition and, and understanding and recognising that other people have the same love-hate fears or similarities. And so it's conveying all that into the business place. So it is, yeah, it, it's it's stand-up comedy, but in, in business form. Yeah, so, it's And great. it works really well. Uh-huh. It's remarkable how many transferable aspects there are. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and it is that thing, and and the key thing is about that connection. It's about connecting with people and keeping people's attention, and getting over that fear. And so, again, because in stand-up comedy, everybody assumes because that's the art form. The art form is that you look as if you've just made it up on the spot, <laughs> but we haven't. Yeah. It's very, you know, well thought out, prepared. You know, as much as I am unprepared for what I'm going to say, I have thought about it you know i have written jokes that i know i'm going to you know i got you yeah um so i have material that i you know i just know very well and it just sounds like i've just thought of it Uh and and i think again when people you know go in to do presentations in business they they kind of they know what they're going to say but not right and i go right to the beginning literally you know going i was going hello my name is you know, so knowing exactly what you are going to say and what tone you're going to adopt and what mm. attitude. So it's all about mindset and about, you know, are you going to be upbeat? Are you going to be, you know, more down downbeat? And also about <clears throat> decompartmentalizing because as a stand-up, that's my job. But I'm like everybody else. I'll have a shit day. I'll fall out with my husband. I'll have a screaming argument with one of the kids. You know, mm-hmm. a, a bill hasn't been paid. You know, I don't go to work every day in a fantastic mood going, ha comedy. You know, there's somebody, you know, people <laughs> yeah. die. And you go, oh, I don't feel funny. Um, but that's, you know, and so it's about decompartmentalizing. So it's about, you know, leaving that, that, Jojo at the stage door yeah. and and the other Jojo going in. And it's the same with work, you know, quite often. And women are particularly bad for it, for, you know, maybe being late, going, oh, I'm really sorry, it was late, but, you know, I got caught in traffic and I dropped the kids off and blah, 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 and giving all this explanation as to why. And it's going, not relevant. And, you know, a lot of people, the waffle, again, with stand-up, the thing about stand-up is getting to the joke really quickly. It's about brevity, it's about use of language, it's about what kind of language you use and in what context. And again, mm-hmm. in business, that works really well to yeah. get people to understand, get to the point, don't waffle around, don't 
give you know extraneous information or um, descriptions of something. Nobody cares that you had to drop the kids off. Do you know what I mean that is not relevant to this board meeting? Yeah. You know? yeah. So just get to the point um, and be succinct and say what you want to say. So it's yeah, and about what language to use. So mm-hmm. yeah, I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. I love your passion for it. It's brilliant. <laughs> it really is. It's infectious. It's great. Thank you. You're welcome. You recently performed uh, in the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. What's it like performing in the festival? Exhausting. <laughs> yeah. It's very tiring. Um, but it's one of those things, I mean, it is the trade fair, if you like, and it's it, you'd be mad not to do it. I'd be mad not to do it, given that I live in Edinburgh. But um, it is that thing. It's kind of you've got all your mates around you for a month, which is fun. Mm-hmm. But it's so exhausting. And you just, it's that thing of going, you end up saying yes to everything. Um, kind of going, oh yeah, you know, I'll do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, I'll do that. Yeah, oh yes, I'll do that as well. And then you realise that you've got a, you're doing a play at one o'clock, and you've got your own show at five o'clock, and you're doing a stand-up show at eight o'clock and eleven o'clock. Oh, and you're going to do late and live at one o'clock in the morning. Oh, that was really well thought out. And then you have to be up again. Um, but you just run on adrenaline, and mm-hmm. and it is that thing. And everybody's doing it. Everybody's in the same boat, and it is a bubble. And people talk about the bubble of Edinburgh. But you literally, I didn't see the news for a month. I could, we, you know, Trump could have blown out North Korea and I wouldn't have noticed. Um, you know, yeah. Just had no idea. Um, and it's very self-obsessed and it's incredibly egotistical. Um, but it's fun. But I, 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 and every year I go, I don't know how I did a month. I don't know how I did a month. And I think I said at the beginning, you kind of go, after the first three days, you know, and all the sort of launch parties and, and seeing everybody and, you know, the sort of excitement, the adrenaline, and you just do three days and go, oh, there's no way, I can't, I can't cope, I can't do a month of this. And then it's over. And then it is the last night and just go, oh. and it's slightly, it's a bit like grief. you just like, oh. mm. and then, but already now, I mean, we're October going, you know, the thing's going, uh, oh, so next year, hmm, I think of a show title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's madness. Mm-hmm. It's just madness. Good madness. Mm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I was looking at your website about your future events and gigs. You've got a lot. You've got yeah, a lot on. Yeah. Well, I quite, I, I like diversifying. I like doing lots of different things. And that's, again, it's just been organic. It's kind of, I never say no. So, <laughs> and I'm quite happy to sort of experiment with things. And I like doing things that are a little bit different. And um, so, yeah, so because we've, with my husband, we've got our own um, comedy events company. Yes. So, in fact, he's away off to Elgin tonight. We run a, a club up in Elgin on the last Wednesday of every month. So he's taken a carload of comedians up there. <laughs> and so we run bespoke events. Um, and sometimes he even books me, which is nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we run our own events. And then I've got the stand-up and be counter workshops, which is business thing. Yeah. But then there's Jojo Sutherland who... You know, Jojo Sutherland this weekend is off to Birmingham um, yeah. <laughs> to do gigs in a comedy club, the, bre- the bread and butter gigs, you know, so that you do, um, which will probably be pissed up stags and hens, so for two nights. Um, and then, like I say, next weekend, we've got this, or more sort of mental health sort of thing. And then I'm out again on tour with Tom Stade, I'm going to Belfast in Dublin. Um, and yeah, just all sorts of different, and I like different gigs, and the stand have quite sort of, few um like bona fide and shambles where 
with Bonafide, you just have to, you're given a topic and you have to write a new 15 minutes material, which is quite scary. <laughs> um, but I love that. I like challenging myself. Yeah. So it's, and then last night I did Bright Club in Dundee, which is oh, okay. the academics that are not stand-ups, but they use their academic course to develop some stand-up from that. Oh, right. And I find that fascinating. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to laugh? Oh, because what on earth would we... We'd all be self-harming, Elliot, if we didn't laugh. Wouldn't we? Yeah, probably. Just, and I think that's... Yeah. The, and I, I don't know whether people are becoming a little bit more serious because people are certainly getting offended a lot easier mm. and people are, are a little bit more sensitive to things. And, and I think that's out of people's natural fear that the world is a little bit delicate at the moment and it's and I think people are genuinely fearful and sort of that need to, to care for other people and that need to not be mean is sort of transcending into comedy clubs we're going don't don't say nasty things about people and you go oh stop it come on let's still laugh at each other and let's still <sighs> just poke fun at you and remind ourselves because it I think it's you know especially when awful things are happening and mm-hmm. I remember you know it sounds ridiculous but one of the funniest days of my life still remains the day that my mother died now that sounds awful but it was the worst day of my life but the best day of my life because all my brothers and sisters and we all gathered and we cried and then somebody told a story and we laughed and we reminisced and we joked and as much as I was crying tears of sadness Mm -hmm. I was never cried so much with laughter just the, the silly thing, and and that's what you know. In sort of dread, there's that stark contrast to something awful happening. Is mm-hmm. having humour to counteract it and to cope with it. And I think that needs to be a little bit more in everyday life. I think we need to laugh way more about the things that are upsetting us than than crying about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of comedians, um, certainly that I can think of, that use that kind of shock and awe style of, mm-hmm. of comedy yeah um when they're making they're poking fun at things that really probably shouldn't be going near yeah but, um you know like uh, jimmy carr jim yeah. jeffries frankie boyle style absolutely of, my god i mean frankie and, and quite often i think people just hear certain words and they are immediately offended because they you know they'll, they'll hear the word paedophilia and yeah. go oh my god he was outrageous he was talking about you know and you go what was he talking about did you actually listen to what he said because i don't think he was i don't think he's a fan of of yeah, people, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, the yeah. I think if you listen to the actually he's using a strong sort of he's using an extreme example to make a very strong political point. Exactly. Um and yeah, I think I just wish people would listen. It's like people read headlines and go, Oh, that's outrageous and go, hang on a minute, let's just hear a little bit more of the story. Yeah. Mm, turns out it's not quite as shocking as you first thought. You know, and yeah, I think people and I think that's again a sort of generational thing. I think it's that the access to, to social media and that instant kind of gratification of something, oh, and people just make up their minds so quickly. You yeah. just go, wow. You know? In fact, yeah. I was even quite cross at the moment. That, and the headlines about this girl that stabbed her boyfriend, the Oxford student, mm-hmm. and that, you know, because she's posh and she's, you know, and she's, and she's clever, she's not gone to jail. And go, Please read behind the headlines. Please, if that was a working class lad, it wouldn't go. No, I think you'll find genuinely 
we're trying not to send people to prison just for the sake of it. And there's <laughs> mitigating circles and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, there is, read the story behind that first and then find other stories. And it's, yeah, I'm just kind of like, yeah. stop jumping to conclusions. And no, Absolutely. the judge never said she was clever. That just has managed to seep into the headlines and everybody's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I get cross that people don't go behind the headlines. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm absolutely with you. Mm. Absolutely with you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? Genuinely making people laugh. I genuinely, it gives me a real buzz. But also, I like, I genuinely like seeing light bulbs go on. I like it when people go, oh, gosh, she's got a point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Or especially when I teach in, when I do courses, when I lynch, because it's so second nature to me and things... And that was the first thing, when I first started doing stand-up recounted workshops, I was like, I, no one's going to buy this. I mean, this is obvious. And then I realised, oh, it's not. It's just obvious to me. And when you something so obvious to you, you think then everybody else must know. Do you know? It's, it's just so simple. You just get up there and you talk to people. It's fine. <laughs> you know, and they go, oh, right, no, okay, oh, okay, no, I get it. Right, okay, yeah. Um, and... And so I and I think one of my favourite things when I was teaching um, for Universal Comedy, so it was people with long-term ill health and mental health issues, and there was a woman, it was a 10-week course, and a woman was being brought to the course every week because she suffered from agoraphobia. So she would get picked up, brought to the course, then taken home. And so week five was um, she couldn't, uh, she couldn't get a lift, this guy, whoever was bringing her. And I said, oh, I'm sure we can organise that. She said, no, no, and she was kind of quite adamant. She just liked to go with him. And so, and I, I was like, okay, well, no worries. So you'll meet, miss next week, but you'll be back the following week. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fine. So, okay, right. And then, so week five came and she was at the course. And I said, oh, I said, oh, so did you manage to get your lift? And she said, no, I couldn't bear to miss the course. And she got on a train for the <gasps> first time in two years and left the house. Oh, and I was floods of tears I was just like oh my god and that I think if you can actually action a change in someone's life or inspire someone mm -hmm. to just go bloody hell yeah I can do it come on let's do it mm. but that's that's the best thing yes yeah. fantastic so and quite often I've done shows I did show about domestic violence and and that was I felt really really good afterwards and the amount of women that came up afterwards said that they'd been in a similar situation I just go it's about connect it's about connection and I think whenever mm -hmm. I feel a connection with somebody or I feel that I've really made a difference I kind of go oh I feel good about myself <laughs> so yeah no it is it's nice yeah absolutely what, what do you feel is is your your kind of purpose in life I have no idea I think I hope it's to kind of, well, to enjoy myself, really. Hmm. I really think it's about, I don't know if there's a purpose, because I'm a little bit deep when it comes to that, because, I, because I'm scared of death, but I don't do anything to, I'm not risk-averse, do you know what I mean? I do everything that would possibly lead to an earlier death than, than is natural, um, even though I don't want to die, because I can't imagine a world with me not in it. I just, ridiculous notion. Um, but I behave in such a way I probably dropped it. You know, I smoke a drink. Right? I'm just like, um, so, and so I, and so like I sometimes get those thought processes with when I kind of go, what is the point? Do you know what I mean the purpose? Of, because we're all going to die anyway. So what's the point? Yeah. So I'm a little bit kind of existential and that kind of like, uh, and everything doesn't have a point, and there seems to be no purpose to anything. So 
in some way, I don't think there is a purpose, which I then genuinely just go, well, let's just have a laugh and just, you know, and literally take each day as it comes. Yeah, so. that's a really interesting view. Um, I, I, I can't think of anyone that I've spoken to thus far that's had a kind of existentialist view, mm. which is interesting. But mm. I, I think it's it, it, it kind of fascinates me. So you, you don't think that there's kind of a reason for Mm-mm. man's existence? No, and, and I, I, I actually find it quite pointless. I just kind really? of, what's the point? I mean, all, the, all this effort for what? To be dead forever. <laughs> like, seems like an awful lot of effort to go to. Mm. Um, but yeah, and so in some <laughs> respects it feels comp- it feels unreal. Everything feels not real. Yeah, Uh-oh. that's fascinating. I've, I've been listening a lot to a, uh, a guy recently who's a kind of modern day philosopher, scientist type person. His name is Jason Silva. And oh, okay. he, he speaks a lot about a book that was written in the 70s by a guy called Ernest Becker called mm. The Denial of Death and how we essentially go through life kind mm-hmm. of uh, ignoring... Absolutely. We're, we're, we're the only um, beings on the planet that are cognizant that mm-hmm. our own, we've got our own impending Ed, doom. doom. Yeah. And, you know, we can kind of perceive the infinite, but equally we get buried yeah. in the ground. So we're God, gods and worms at the same time. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say it's, it's kind of shifted a lot of my views. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of provoked immense gratitude for really basic things. Yeah, 100%. Because you become really aware of, my God, yeah. Yeah, and, and, how, and how tangible, I mean, it's so... It's so could be good, and and I think partly the brain hemorrhage taught me that. I mean, it yeah. was, there was no warning, there was nothing. It was just like literally that could have been it. So, you know, there's an element of going. I'm already 50, 70 years more than could have been. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, and there is that sort of pointlessness to life. I kind of go, you know, it will all be over, and so, and so that idea that things matter, that other people's opinions of you matter or, you know, materialistic things and kind of just go, oh, I couldn't give a shit. I couldn't give a shit what people think about me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. we will be in the ground very shortly. And, yeah, yeah. so I have quite a fit. So half of me terrified of dying. I'm terrified of not being here because I can't bear it. I'm just like, oh, my God. You know, but the yeah. other half of me, so I kind of go, oh, I need to be healthy and I need to, you know, really look after myself and hang on tight. And then the other half goes, ah, <laughs> going to be dead, and I, Let's, you know, why? But you know, have another fag. <laughs> no, it's yes. it's going to kill you. Yes, I know. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's kind of duality, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people are in denial about death. Do you know what I mean they go? Oh, I'm not scared of dying. Go, they're scared of flying. Yeah, you are scared of dying. Then, <laughs> if you're scared of flying, you're scared of dying. Simple. <laughs> what, why else would you be scared of flying? Yeah, yeah. This is a, an interesting one along a, a similar vein. What would you like your legacy to be? Um, I think, I think that's down to my kids. Actually, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know. I yeah. I just I hope that people remember and go, oh, she was a good laugh, wasn't she? Do you know what I mean? I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to to not be here and for. I don't want. I don't want to be forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But and so yeah. I hope that my kids and hopefully my grandchildren, if they ever appear, and yeah, I just think I. I've met so many people. I pro- I've yeah. I've spread myself quite far and wide that. Yeah, people will be talking about me for a while. 
That's what I want my legacy to be. People still talking about me for quite some time to come. <laughs> then I go into folklore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, do you, um, how do you define success? What does that look like for you? Genuinely, if I can not look at my bank account and know that the bills will be paid, then that's success. And I've always said that it's that thing of people go, people are always looking for the next thing. And I kind of go, I've got a lovely house, I've got four great kids, I do a job that I adore, and I pay all my bills. That is the best success. Do you know what I mean? Anything mm-hmm. on top of that is absolute gravy. But, you know, get yeah, a few more pennies and, you know, be able to. You know, I was saying to my husband this morning, because I'm going off to support Tom um, in Belfast and Dublin, and then he's going on to Galway for the festival. And I was like, oh. And I thought, oh, it'd be quite nice, wouldn't it? Just, you know, and mum was like, and, I, and we just can't afford to them. We've got too much stuff going on and can't afford. We've just moved house and just like, and, and I was like, that would be nice, you know, just hmm. to not have to worry. Just go, yeah, you take a few days off and we'll just go and we'll have a few days just for the hell of it. Um, yeah, that'd be nice. But, but success is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not, yeah. Not having to check your bank account to see if you've got enough to pay the rent. That's success. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer. I really like that. I really like that. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Fuck them. <laughs> oh, that's outstanding. <laughs> when I used to have really bad nerves, and the Reverend Obadiah Steppenwolf III, who suffers dreadful nerves, and uh, and I was sort of standing there, and I was like, oh, I said, oh, I don't like the audience, and he went, fuck them. I went, Good advice. That's good advice. Well, yeah, fuck them. It's the best advice I've ever been given. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody's ever said that. But actually, there probably isn't better advice than that. I didn't ask before we started this, so it was okay to swear. It's absolutely fine. Yeah, no, that's fine. Don't worry about it. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, um, I would say the majority of people probably don't actually swear, mm-hmm. but uh, all of my episodes have a like an explicit marker just Phew. just in case, Phew. just in case so you're, <laughs> you're in the clear. <laughs> Only had a couple of f-bombs, pretty a lot worse. Yeah, here's a question actually: Who are the people in your life that have had the greatest influence on you? Um. My dad, I think, had a lot of influence in as much as he had that very gung-ho attitude. He, he, had a, he had a great attitude that something would always turn up. And sometimes it was quite late to the party, but something always did turn up. Do you know what I mean? It was, and I never worry. I just, you know, I do have that kind of, something will, something will fix it, you know, if there's a problem. And, um, and that I think as well, both my parents actually were very... Because they were very posh, do you know what I mean? But that very sort of aristocratic, eccentric, not a pot to, pot to piss in kind of, you know, they didn't have any money, but they had all the breeding. <laughs> but none of that, no airs and graces, that real sense of, they really instill, you know, sort of dustman to duke. It doesn't matter who mm. people are. You like people for who they are, not what they are. Mm. And so, you know, he may have his own company and lots of money, but he was an absolute prick. 
don't have anything to do with them, you know, and equally, you know, might just clean a house, or, but it's fabulous and would salt the earth. And, and yeah, just to take people on actually who they are, not what they can. It never, never be friends with someone because you think that they can give you something. Oh, what a fantastic, you know, piece of life advice that mm, is. No, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. Mm. Great stuff. If you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say? <laughs> um, oh, wow. Don't marry him. <laughs> Don't drink that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't spend all your money on that. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I I just, I think it was a Julie Walters, it was somebody. Oh, no, it was um, Helen Mirren, I think. She was asked that question and I'd, I'd give her answer, which was, not not to worry about what other people think if you mm -hmm. if you knew how little you gave a shit do you know what I mean it's like you listen to other people and how little people know everybody's trying to fake it everybody's trying to blag it you know <laughs> and yeah um, and I think her answer was um, she would have told a lot more people to fuck off <laughs> I go yeah. oh, I, I feel exactly the same I feel yeah. like I would have I, I, I'd have tolerated a lot less. I'd tell my 20-year-old self to tolerate a lot less people. No. Back yeah. to that, you know, don't be friends with that. Don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I invested a lot of time in people that, you know, yeah, wasn't worthwhile and didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I knew I didn't like them, and I didn't like them for a reason. I should have stuck with my gut instinct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot of... Um sort of threads of thought that kind of tie into a lot of the things that you've said, mm. if you like, yeah. Yeah, some great stuff. I love it. <laughs> if you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? <gasps> oh, I don't remember this as a pre-question. Oh, <laughs> wow. Um, if I could change anything in the world. Oh. oh. I... <laughs> People's attitude, I think I would, I'd love to just, people not to be so judgmental. Is that sort of, that idea that it's so easy to go, you know, lock them up and do that. Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, you shouldn't be allowed to do that. And just go, have you never made a mistake? Have mm. you never just, you know, just let people be, you know? And <laughs> yeah, I would, I if I could, I'd just, I'd have an off switch on a lot of people just to go, no. Nah. <laughs> no. Not let's speak anymore. Just too judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the other thing I would change is that I would speed cameras because I'd just, <laughs> just ban them. <laughs> For since you know, I, and they've just been caught out, so I'm on nine points. <laughs> And I haven't been driving badly <laughs> just because of stupid average speed. Um, there's one from Inverness that average speed of 40. Oh, and it goodness. was a half past midnight. There was no traffic on the road. And I was doing an average speed of 50. I'm like, oh, I've hardly ruined everybody's life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I haven't endangered anyone. Yeah. Even myself. <laughs> oh. 
So yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. Jojo, it's been so much fun speaking with you. Oh, thank um, it's, you. It's been it's been hilarious. Um <laughs> it's been it's been deep. Um and it's just been a lot of fun. It's oh, been, thank you. Yeah, I've it's been enjoyed great. it. Yeah. That's I good. know who's, who would know that a stand up comedian would like talking about themselves so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Yeah, it's honestly, I've, I've loved doing this interview. It's been a huge amount of fun. And, Thank um, you very much for having me. You're absolutely welcome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, keep up the fantastic work. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Jojo, thank you so much. Thank you, Elliot. Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and we'll see you at the next episode.